I figured it out. Good morning. How are y'all? Thanks, Caitlin, for reading today's passage. Before we get to the verses, uh, I want us to think about something for a moment, uh, something really exciting, cheery, the problems and attempted solution that man, that humanity has faced throughout history. Fun topic, right? The problems are many, war, poverty, famine, violence, murder, homelessness, slavery, human trafficking, racism, abortion, and crime of all sorts, and more. Problems continue to plague us. Now, one of the main ways that people have sought to solve these problems is through government. Throughout history, people have formed nations. Uh, And nations have tried many different forms of government with different laws and methods of enforcement. Some include uh, forms of government, socialism, communism, fascism, monarchy, dictatorship, democracy. Now, admittedly, some forms of government are better than others. I like what Winston Churchill said. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that we've tried. My point is, for thousands of years, people have tried to figure out and implement viable forms of government. Some even having good intentions, wanting to make their society better, hoping to deal with the problems of their nation and and maybe even the problems of humanity. But if you look at the news, or even just look around our city, it's obvious that human government continues to be less than effective. Maybe Ronald Reagan had it right when he said, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. Why? Well, put simply and biblically, because human government is run by humans. And humans have a fundamental problem called sin. You guys are good. Why do I even bother? Uh, A problem that manifests itself in lusts and pride and greed and envy corruption, dishonesty, hate, and more. So it seems that the answer to our problems will not come from within, will not come from us. We may have a victory here and there, a war may cease for a time, a crime rate may go down for a year or two, but ultimately history shows that the world's problems continue to grow. We just exchange one problem for another. So what's the answer? Anyone? Jesus. Wow. Jesus is the answer. Jesus, who although he was a man, was different from all other men. Jesus was the perfect God-man who entered our world to solve our problems. In Christ, we have not a man's solution, but God's solution to the problems of humanity. Amen? But, wait a minute, you might ask, If Jesus is the answer, the solution to our problems, and Jesus has already come into our world, lived a perfect sinless life, died a sacrificial death, rose from the dead, and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, then why do our problems still exist? And why do they seem to be getting worse? And beginning in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2, we'll see that it's to this question that the writer of Hebrews turns. Why this question? Well, because, uh, because of what he's written before invites it. 
If you remember in chapter 1, we saw Christ's superiority to the angels. And in verse 7 and 8, just picking those out, we read, Of the angels, he says, God, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is in the scepter of your kingdom, is the scepter of your kingdom. In showing that Christ is superior to the angels, the author has proclaimed Christ's authority, his sovereignty, his eternal kingdom, his power. So he's established Christ's reign and rule over all things. But based on the current situation of his readers, that leads to an obvious question. The readers of Hebrews, remember As we saw in the beginning of chapter 2, these Jewish Christians, these Hebrews, were being pressured by their fellow Jews, and they were facing possible persecution from the Romans. This caused a, a temptation to drift away from the message they had heard, to neglect their great salvation, to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, and return to Judaism. And in that pressure filled situation, it would be natural to ask, If Christ is now seated on his eternal throne, if he rules with a scepter of uprightness, then why are we still facing these kind of problems, these pressures, these persecutions? Why are we still facing all the problems we're facing? Why is the world so messed up? Why are there problems everywhere we turn? And the answer to that question, uh, to answer that question, the author reflects on both man's main problem, the problem that causes all the other problems, and the solution to that problem provided by Jesus Christ. He first shows, and this is the bad news, the problem, man lost dominion by his sin. To see this, we need to uh, back up to the end of chapter 1. In verse 13, as the writer is proclaiming Christ's superiority to angels, he writes... And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then 14 talks a little bit about the angels, but that's the the final verse related to Christ's superiority. And and as we saw when we went through this, it's, it's a rhetorical question. None. No angels. This was said to Christ alone. So in chapter one, we're left with Christ exalted in heaven, where, uh, He's about to overthrow all his enemies. Then in chapter 2, after the exhortation not to drift away from the gospel in verses, in the first five verses, the, I mean, excuse me, in the first four verses, in verse 5, the author picks up the same theme. He writes, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The world to come, of which we are speaking. Key phrase here. This is a, a bit of clarification. Apparently, there's some, well, why aren't we experiencing this uh, enemies? Why aren't they being crushed? Why aren't the, remember the uh, footstools meant the, the boot was on the neck. Why isn't the boot on the neck of the enemies? Well, we're speaking of the world to come. He wants his readers to know that in chapter one, speaking of Christ's superiority to the angels, when God promised to make Christ's enemies uh, a footstool, when God subjects all things to the rule and reign of Christ. The context is in the world to come. It's a time in the future, their future and our future, 
when Christ returns, when He fully establishes His authority and visible kingdom. And we'll talk more about this world to come later. But first, let's think for a moment about Christ's current kingdom and authority. In one sense, it's already been established. It's a done deal. Christ is now seated at the right hand of God in a place of honor and authority. This is what Jesus emphasized prior to his ascension when he commissioned his disciples. He sent them out to the world saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus, even now, has all authority. He is in control of all things. He reigns over the world. But this is seen mainly in the lives of those who trust in Him as their Lord. So here's the present situation. From Christ's ascension to today, He's reigning over His new kingdom and a new humanity. We are new creatures in Christ. He reigns in the lives and the hearts and minds of those who trust in Him. And he reigns in the world, sovereignly directing, guiding, working, drawing people to himself. So yes, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Yet at the same time, the readers of this epistle, like us, find themselves still subject to the conditions of this unredeemed, corrupt, evil world. As we learned in 1 Peter Christians are like Daniel in Babylon, exiles living in a sinful world. This is not our true home. And while here we continue to face difficulty, hardship, sickness, even persecution and death. But why? Why, if Christ reigns, is the world still such a mess? This is the apparent problem that needs to be addressed. And as he's done before, the author of Hebrews turns to the Psalms to give us answers. In this case, he quotes from Psalm 8, where he writes, so this is Hebrews quoting Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So this passage begins a little strange uh, with the words, it has been testified somewhere. The point is not that the author can't remember its location in the Old Testament, that he failed his Sunday school sword drills. You remember those? Isaiah 42, 7. You can get there. Okay, anyway. I didn't go to Sunday school. Well, I did a little bit. Anyway, you don't care. Uh, that's not the point. Psalm 8 was very well known to his Jewish readers. The point seems to be that the exact location of the quote is not the the important thing. The important thing is this is part of God's Word, the Old Testament, inspired by God. Okay, with that out of the way, uh, let me ask you a question. Who are these verses, this quotation from Psalm 8, referring to? Who is man? Who is the Son of Man? Who was made for a little while lower than the angels? who was crowned with glory and honor, who has everything put in subjection under, his, under their feet? Anyone? Jesus, that's good. Anyone else? I mean, no, that's right. That's correct. But it's more than Jesus, in a sense. It's yes, it's Jesus, and yes, it's speaking of humanity. It's speaking, I believe, and I hope to show, in one sense of mankind, but in another sense, it's also or ultimately speaking of Jesus Christ. 
Or you could say this passage, quoting from Psalm 8, or Psalm 8 is written about humanity in general, but as we will see in verse 9, it's ultimately fulfilled in the human Jesus Christ. This is not uncommon in Old Testament scriptures, and sometimes it's quite obvious. For example, David begins Psalm 22 with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David is certainly speaking of himself. He goes on, and you can tell he's talking from his heart, how he feels as he writes the psalm. But as we know, Christ says these same words from the cross. In Matthew, we read, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ultimately, Psalm 22 is speaking of the time when Christ takes on himself our sins and is for a time forsaken by God. So with that understanding, let's look at why the author of Hebrews quoted Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, David begins with uh, praise to God. Praising God for His majesty revealed in creation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. And in verse 3, when I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars, which You have set in place. So David, in Psalm 8, is taking his readers back to creation. And he's marveling at the majestic work of God. Then in comparison, David writes, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Son of man, by the way, is just another way of saying man. Jesus spoke of himself as the son of man, speaking of his humanity. Okay? We often, son of man, we think Jesus called himself that, so that means son of God. No, it means son of man. It's speaking of his humanity. David's point is, when you see the wonder and power of God's creation, how insignificant we seem in comparison. However, despite this, God cares for us. Psalm 8 continues, and this is what the author of Hebrews quotes. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet." Here, we need to understand that David is again reflecting back to creation, specifically what God did when he created man, Adam and Eve. We see this in Genesis 1.26, which reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In the beginning, God made man and woman in his own image. And he gave them dominion. Dominion, the right to rule. The right to, to, to dictate over. He gave them dominion over the rest of creation. Or we could say, as Psalm 8 does, God gave man dominion over the works of his, of his hands. He put all things under man's feet. He crowned him with glory and honor as the ruler over creation. Man was given dominion and authority over everything God created. That's the context of Psalm 8. David is pointing back to God's creation and his crowning of man to rule over creation. You following me? Good. But there's a problem. 
A problem that Psalm 8 doesn't address directly. But the author of Hebrews points out this in the second half of verse 8. He's quoted from Psalm 8, reflecting on the original state of man in creation, and then he writes, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's the way in the beginning it was. However, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Here's a statement of humanity's problem. The problem is that we've lost what God once freely gave us, dominion over creation. What God originally bestowed upon man in creation, dominion, rule, control, is not what we see at present. Uh, What an understatement, right? As we look around, it's clear that man doesn't have everything under control. Not much of anything, actually. If God placed everything under man's feet, then something has gone uh, terribly wrong. If we were to make a list of the things in the world that are not under man's control, it would be extremely long. For example, man is at the mercy of uh, weather. His food supply, even today, is greatly influenced by forces outside his control. Humanity at times in different places on earth is starving, suffering, sick, and dying. Hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, earthquakes are completely out of our control and can destroy what we build. Man may have some degree of influence over nature. He can farm the land as long as it doesn't hail. I remember one time I was at a farm, my wife's uncle's farm, and the fields were out there and the clouds were rolling, hail was predicted, and you know what he was doing? Hoping for hail. You know why? He had insurance. And then he'd just get the money. He wouldn't have to do any more farming for that year. So anyway, we're not in control. Even when we think we are, we can cut down trees. We can divert some rivers and raise some certain animals. But man does not rule over these things completely. In fact, man is not able to control his own self his own passions, or even his own thoughts. Again, a quick look at the the news will show this. All around the world, we see human-caused wars and crime and poverty and more. Clearly, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is man's problem. We've lost control. We're out of control. But how did we get to this out-of-control situation? The author of Hebrews doesn't tell us because his Jewish readers would have certainly understood. The answer is found in the second and third chapter of Genesis. In Genesis, following creation, we find out what went wrong. God gave Adam, the first man, the representative of our race, a single command. Verse 16, Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Adam was not to seek independence from God. He was given dominion over all of creation. He was crowned with glory as the ruler of creation. But he was to remain in subjection, obedience to the Creator God. God also made the consequences of not doing this, Remaining in obedience, subjection to God, clear to Adam. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then in Genesis 3, tells us the tragic story of what happened next. The serpent serpent deceived the woman. He questioned the command, the word of God. Did God actually say? 
And he also lied to the woman. Verse 4, Genesis 3. But the serpent said to her, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He told her that God gave the command to Adam only to, to keep him down. It's always the devil's aim to persuade us that despite any evidence to the contrary, God really doesn't love us. He really doesn't want what's best for us. So with Eve's encouragement, Adam ate the forbidden fruit. And the serpent wasn't lying about one thing. Adam and Eve did come to know good and evil. They knew the good they had forfeited and the evil they had gained by rebelling against God. However, they did not become like God. Instead, they became less like God. The image of God in man was marred by sin. And they became more like the devil who, who they trusted and who is in continual rebellion against God. Matthew Henry observes, Now when it was too late, they saw the folly of eating the forbidden fruit. They saw the happiness they had fallen from and the misery they had fallen into. They saw a loving God provoked, his grace and favor forfeited, his likeness and image lost, dominion over the creation gone. They saw their natures corrupted and depraved. They saw themselves disrobed of all their ornaments and incense, that's flags, of honor. Degraded from their dignity and disgraced in the highest degree, laid open to the contempt and reproach of heaven and earth and their own consciences. So man was created by God as his image bearer. He was crowned with glory and honor and dominion. But by his sin, he no longer shared an intimate relationship with God. Instead, he became subject to God's curse. Man, humanity, is now in bondage to sin and under the curse of death. Even creation itself began decaying, dying when man sinned. Man no longer reigns over creation. And in the end, we are all destined to return to the dust from which we were created. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. From this first sin sprang forth many, many more, resulting in the rest of man's problems. We are not in relationship with God, therefore we are unable to live in righteousness and peace with God or man. This is what the Bible says our problem is. We find it throughout scriptures, including Hebrews chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. Man was created in glory and honor and dominion. Man was created to be in relationship with God, but he's fallen from that state. And because we're under the curse of sin and have already been declared guilty by God, there is in ourselves no hope of return from whence we came. We are condemned already, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 18. God's creation of humanity, recorded in Genesis 1:26 and poetically celebrated in Psalm 8, has been spoiled by Adam's sin and the resulting curse of death. At present, the writer says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the problem. That's the bad news. So what's the solution? The solution, Jesus gained dominion by his sacrifice. To solve man's problem created by sin, God himself had to intervene. And according to the Bible, that's exactly what he did. He provided the one and only solution to our problem. Not a human, earthly solution, but a godly, heavenly solution. He provided a Savior, Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God. To the Romans, 
the Apostle Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is also what the writer of Hebrews is saying. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. On the one hand, there's man, removed from Eden and held in bondage to sin and death. Then onto the stage, God sends his one and only son, the new man, the second Adam. Here's the solution to man's problem. He is the great, the last, the only hope of a dying race. In him is the fulfillment of man's promised destiny as seen in Genesis and set forth in Psalm 8. Jesus is the new Adam of the new creation. What Adam lost, he regained. And here's the thing for us to rejoice in. This is amazing. All who are found in Christ through faith will not only have their sins forgiven, they'll not only be made righteous before God, They'll not only be returned to relationship with their creator, they, we, will share in the glory and honor and dominion of Christ gained through his sacrificial death on the cross. By his sacrifice, he gains what we lost, not for himself only, but for all who trust in him. And to be included in the solution provided by God through Christ, we have to look to Jesus. As verse 9 says, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. This is the purpose of the book of Hebrews from start to finish. To show us, to make known to us Jesus as the solution to our problem. He became man that he might be the perfect sacrifice. That he might reclaim what humanity lost. As Richard Phillips in his commentary on Hebrews puts it, From the perspective of the Bible, history is about man's fall from blessing and dominion through sin, and about Jesus Christ as the answer from God, the redeemer of those lost in sin, and the forerunner of the new creation in which God's original purpose is brought to glorious fulfillment. Amen? At the center of history is the story of Jesus Christ, and the writer of Hebrews sees that story outlined in the words of Psalm 8. He's quoted directly from Psalm 8 in verses 6 through 8. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these verses. Psalm 8. That's what the Hebrews declares. Uh, That's what we find. That's what we come to see in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Same. He's now pulling out from Psalm 8 again. But he's talking directly about Jesus, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus' life and story can be seen in three phases, if you will. The first two are set forth right here in Psalm, I mean in uh, Hebrews 2.9. There is humiliation and his exaltation. First is Jesus' humiliation. 
which is shown by the words, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Remember Jesus, to see this humiliation, we have to remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. We saw that in chapter 1. And before his incarnation, before he took on human flesh, from eternity past, Jesus existed in perfect honor and glory, in perfect loving relationship with the Father. He needed nothing, yet he chose humiliation. He chose to humble himself, taking on flesh, becoming one of us. He emptied himself, not of his divinity, but of his divine rights. He set them aside for a time. And in so doing, he, the one who created the angels, became for a little while lower than the angels. And if that's not humiliation enough, on the cross, he subjected himself to the greatest humiliation of all, the suffering of death. On the cross, our Lord died a death that was shameful before men and cursed by God. The Romans reserved crucifixion for the worst offenders. In fact, Roman citizens could not be crucified. Church, his church tradition says Paul, a Roman citizen, was beheaded. I don't know. It's quicker, the beheading. And the Word of God says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. As Jesus in humiliation hung on the cross, He experienced the curse of sin. He bore the guilt of our sin and received the whole wrath of God. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what was the result of this humiliation? Again, Hebrews 2.9 says, The suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for everyone. He died for us. He died that we might live. And his death was not like the death of any other man. For he was not merely man, but God the Son. He was not a sinner. He was the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By his death, Jesus took God's curse against sin that belonged to us upon himself. This is the very curse that had destroyed humanity. In the fall, man suffered the sentence of death. But Christ came into the world as the perfect God-man that he might take that death upon himself and thus deliver us out of death into new life. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, for, for our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And because of this, we, through trusting in Christ alone, can be reconciled to God. We can enter into eternal relationship with God. That's the significance of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And then came His exaltation. In response to Christ's humiliation, His obedience unto death, God raised Him from the dead and exalted Him to the right hand. He is, verse 9 says, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. In raising Christ from the dead, God the Father honored His Son's perfect obedience. He accepted his sacrifice. He declared the defeat of both sin and death. 
And he crowned Christ with glory and honor, establishing him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So even now, in his exalted state, the Lord Jesus reigns over all. It's by and through Christ alone that that we come to him in faith, receiving eternal life. As Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.10, Our Savior, Jesus Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is what's going on right now in our world. Christ is at work through His church, bringing the gospel, bringing salvation to the nations, that He might taste death for everyone, everyone who trusts in Him. That's what we see in the beginning of verse 10 which we'll look at in two weeks. Next week, uh, Brian's going to be preaching from James, right? Okay, so you get a little break from the Hebrews. Uh, Jesus tasted death for everyone, for it, it was fitting, verse 10, that he for whom and by whom all things exist is bringing many sons to glory. Right now, Jesus is in the process of bringing many sons to glory. And that... This is at least in part the answer to the original question. If Jesus, through his already accomplished humiliation and exaltation, his death and resurrection and ascension is the solution to the world's problems, then why do we still have problems? Well, because he's still at work in this dying world. He has things to do, things for us to do. He's still calling out by the gospel through his church all he has chosen. We saw the same thing, if you remember way back to 2 Peter. In chapter 3, verse 9, the question Peter's readers were having was, uh, uh, they were experiencing suffering and persecution, and they were asking, why hasn't the promised return of Christ taken place? Why, why, Why aren't we out of here yet? Why hasn't Jesus come and established his kingdom on earth? And Peter answers, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, has not returned because He's seated at the right hand of the Father at work and patiently waiting for all who would come to repentance and be saved. He's calling many sons to glory. That's what's taking place right now. But that's not the end of the story. This this will not continue on forever. We've seen Act 1, Christ's humiliation, His suffering and death for the sins of humanity. And we've seen and are living out Act 2 where Christ is exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father, working to bring people into His kingdom. But there's a final act when all things will be set right. Act 3 will bring the culmination to Christ's story. We already saw it in verse 5 of Hebrews. Remember I said we'd get back to it. Here we are. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. As I said earlier, there is a world to come. A world where all Christ's enemies will be His footstool. A world where God will subject all things visible and invisible to the rule and reign of Christ. And this world will begin to be ushered in upon Christ's return. Peter also writes of this world to come. 
After answering the question of why Christ has yet to return and establish his visible kingdom, Peter continues, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Yes, the world is a mess and it will be destroyed. But there is a world to come. After the destruction of the old world, in verse 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Rejoice, for there's a third act in Jesus' saving ministry. There will be a new world, a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. And all who trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, all who have invited Christ to rule and reign in their lives will be part of that new world. That's our future hope. As we live now as exiles in this messy world of suffering, But what about today? Does Christ reign now? Yes, but his kingdom is veiled. In this sense, the words applied to humanity also apply to Christ. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Not every knee is bowed before Christ. Not every tongue confesses him as Lord of all. Yet Christ does reign spiritually and ultimately over this evil dying world. He's conquering his enemies with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. He's at work in the lives of his people, transforming us into his glorious image. He's at work in the world, calling people to himself through the gospel. Christ has come, and through his death and resurrection, he has achieved salvation. But the problem of the world, of this world, the lost dominion because of sin, currently remains. But Christ will solve this problem, for he's coming again. And he will crush all his enemies. Sin and death and the devil and this present world, all will be placed under his feet and destroyed. This will make way for the new creation. A new heaven and a new earth where Christ's righteousness will reign and span all eternity. Already his reign is working in the lives of his people as they turn away from sin Already we see his kingdom expanded in the life of the church, the church around the world as it receives more and more new believers. So we have this current world in which we live, a world that is still messy, a world that's out of control and filled with sin and suffering, a world which, as we saw last week, is is trying to pull us, to tempt us away from Christ. And we have the world to come, the world where righteousness dwells, and all things will be set right. And the question is, the question for me and for you, to which world do you belong? In which world have you placed your hopes and dreams, your treasures, your salvation? I get oftentimes caught up in this world. I get caught up in the things of this world. I get caught up in the people of this world. I get caught up in the problems of this world. God, What's, what's going wrong, I say? But we can't trust in this world. I mean, we can't be surprised that the world is going sideways, if you will. It's destined for destruction. We just, we just saw that. I'm not saying it can't come back a little bit. You know, there can't be a time where God delays. But ultimately, 
It's destined for destruction. We can't hope in this world. If we trust in this world, then, then you'll suffer its fate. When Christ comes in glory to separate his own from those who still live as slaves to sin, as in bondage to this world. But if you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this world has lost its claim on you. You are even now by faith citizens of the world to come, where Christ reigns in glory. To the eyes of the world, it's certainly, it's certainly true we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But the eyes of faith see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, reigning over all history, which points to Him and leads to His return. And then, every knee, I will see, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But for now... As we continue in faith, trusting in Christ to fulfill His promise of a world to come, this is the already but not now. Excuse me, the already but not yet of the Christian life. Everything is already ours in Christ, though not yet realized in our experience. Let us then be sure that we do not belong to this world that will be destroyed. Let us be sure that we've escaped the wrath of God for our sin through faith in Christ. Let us not look at this world with longing, for all it offers is death. Instead, let us look to the cross with gratitude, with joy, and with hope. For there Christ suffered death for us, for you and for me, and he broke the dominion of sin and death over our lives. And let us look forward to the day of his return in glory, when Christ will reign in righteousness, peace, joy forevermore. So we say with the writer of Hebrews, yes, we see the world as it is. We see and feel the lament, the reign of sin and death. Yes, we see it, but that's not all we see. We see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for all who trust in him. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you pray with me? Father God, we pause and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he, through his humiliation, through his suffering, through his death, he's regained what we lost, what Adam gave up, by walking away from you, by what we agree, show we agree with Adam when we sin. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he's given that back. And I pray for myself, and I pray for each person here, that we would look to you. We would turn our eyes to Jesus, and the things of this world would fall away. We would seek our joy, our hope, our fulfillment in Christ, and the things he offers. That you would give us faith to trust in you, to trust in your return. Father, and if there are those here that do not yet know you as Lord and Savior, we pray that you would draw them to yourself and you would use us to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation. In Christ's name, amen. Amen, amen. I'm always in awe about, sometimes I put my music together